Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 7. Last week, I took a slight off-topic break from Deuteronomy by working through disease and plague as found in the Bible. I also covered the podcast for your anniversary. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week begins the deep dive into the people, places, and things found in Deuteronomy. Given that the book is essentially a rehashing of everything found in prior books of the Old Testament, I don't expect this particular chapter of the podcast to take as long, though I haven't completely sketched out all of the things to be covered. There are several new places introduced, and I'll get to many of these in this in the next episode. But these are all, with a few exceptions, minor places that we know little about. This shouldn't be terribly surprising, as the major places were certainly mentioned in the first four books of the Pentateuch. And with that somewhat longer introduction done, let's get started. The first of several locales are mentioned in chapter 1, and the first of the first is a place known as Suf. As will be a somewhat constant refrain, not much is known about Suf, except that in many ancient Hebrew texts of Deuteronomy, Suf isn't mentioned at all, and what's found in its stead is the Red Sea. So, the natural conclusion is that it was another name for this body of water, or somewhere there was a transcription error. This is why both the New Revised Standard and the NIV list Suf, and the King James calls the place the Red Sea. Different source text. If it does refer to the sea, it's likely because the Hebrew name for the body of water was Yamsuf, and the singular word was merely an abbreviation. A few posit that it could instead refer to Suf, with a Z instead of an S, and found in 1 Samuel 9. It could also be the name Safa found in Numbers 21, which is actually a quote from the lost book of the Wars of the Lord, the truly lost book that I covered in Chapter 5, Episode 12. At least I covered the little that is known about it, and that's it for Suf, or maybe the Red Sea. Next on the list is Top Hill, also from the first verse of the first chapter. This town is thought to be the same as the modern city of Tephila in Jordan, not terribly far from Petra. Little is known about the town of Top Hill, but if it is truly Tephila, then we know a great deal more about the history of that place. It's assumed to have been initially occupied and built by the Edomites. More on them in a minute. But it may have been occupied long before then, as artifacts have been uncovered that date back as long ago as the Stone Age, meaning the time period when stone tools predominated society. In this region, this equates as late as about 10,000 BC. Artifacts dating back at least this far are extremely typical for the greater region. What is unusual is that other stone tools have been found in the general vicinity of Tephila that are as old, at least according to some researchers, as 90,000 BC. The usual caveat applies. They're dating, not mine. The town is located in the western central portion of the modern country of Jordan, to the east-southeast of the Dead Sea, in a very dry region. So, 
Why would it have been occupied for so long if it's essentially in the desert? The answer to that question is easy. In its immediate vicinity are some close to 400 natural springs. There's also a natural lake along with hot springs. All of this water is abundant enough to provide enough hydration, not just for human consumption, but also to irrigate native crops such as olives, grapes, and figs. The soil is also rich in copper, an ore that proved valuable from the Copper Age forward. Circling back to the Edomites, when they controlled the area, a time that included the period of the wandering Israelites, the region around and including Tephila was under their control. Their capital was Bushera, a city that's about 14 miles, 23 kilometers south of Tephila. Later, the city would come under control of the Nabataeans, who made their capital at Petra, some 35 miles, 55 kilometers to the south. Then along came the Romans, who would establish control over the city. Then the Muslims, whose control was interrupted by a short period where the Crusaders were in charge of the region. Overall, the post-Roman history of the area follows the trend I've covered in depth throughout the region. And that's it for the town of Tephila, thought to be the biblical Tophel. Next in the text is a place known as Laban, but this isn't the first mention of the name in the Bible. In Genesis, Laban was Rebekah's brother, which made him Isaac's brother-in-law and Jacob's uncle. He would take in the young Jacob and employ him for many years, though the word employ is a bit loose with the definition. He would later trick Jacob into marrying Leah. Jacob would later marry another of Laban's daughters, Rachel, who was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. Laban lived in Paddan Aram, in Mesopotamia. The general presumption is that the place in Deuteronomy was named after this Laban, though it's never explicitly stated. Other than that, nothing is really known about this city. Do note that there are a couple of modern villages that bear the name, but these are in Iran, and therefore a long way from where the Israelites were traveling. Moving along. Next is Hazroth, a name that in Hebrew translates to yards, like stockyards. It's mentioned a few times in Numbers, along with this reference in the first chapter of Deuteronomy. It was here that Miriam was stricken with leprosy. And what's becoming the standard refrain for the episode applies here, too. Its location is uncertain. I may have mentioned that while covering the location many episodes ago. Its position in the text lets us know that it was likely north of Mount Sinai, and within a reasonable proximity to the wilderness of Paran. And that's it. Even less is known about Dizahab. We do know that the name means the region of gold and that it was likely close to Hazroth, Laban, and Tophel, maybe to the east of the Arabah, a place I'll get to in a bit. Next is the city of Edri, which is thought to be the modern city of Dera, located in the extreme southwest of Syria, essentially on its border with Jordan, in a stone's throw from Israel. The history of the city goes back at least as far as the Canaanites, which makes sense 
as they would have been the natural inhabitants when the wandering Israelites showed up. Backing up a little further, during the reign of the Egyptian pharaoh Thutmose III, so between 1490 and 1436 BC, it may have been mentioned in Egyptian hieroglyphic text. It was here that the Israelites battled the local king Og from the city and defeated him. Both Eldad and Medab are said to have been buried here. These two Israelites prophesied in Numbers 11. While the 70 elders and Moses were assembled in the tent of meeting, as the text reads, the two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, one of his chosen men, said, My lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's peoples were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them? And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. The two merit no further mention in the Bible, and the story of them being interred in the city ultimately comes from Jewish tradition. And since I didn't cover them previously, and this is really the only place they come up, it's worthy of a short trip down a rabbit hole. So, I'll pause the discussion of Edry just for a minute. Eldad and Medab are said to have prophesied among the Israelites, despite that they were remaining in the camp while the 70 elders went to the tent to receive the ability of prophecy from God. This is described in the text as taking some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. In this part of the narrative, Joshua asked Moses to forbid Eldad and Medab from prophecy, but Moses countered that it was a good thing that others could prophesy, and that ideally all the Israelites would prophesy. In rabbinical tradition, Eldab and Medab were said to have predicted a war with Gog and Magog. Magog was the son of Japheth in the table of nations found in Genesis. It's assumed the nation was named after its founder, though it may also be more of a generic reference to an enemy of the Israelites. The origin of Gog is a bit less clear. Back in rabbinical tradition, the king from Magog united some Canaanites to fight against the Israelites, but they were ultimately defeated by fire sent directly from God. According to some biblical scholars, the real purpose of the story was to indicate that prophecy was not restricted to a select few people. According to Jewish tradition, Eldab and Medab were buried in the same cave in Edri, which gets me back to that city. The history of the city followed that of the region, essentially operating as a semi-independent city-state and client city throughout all of its ancient history. Eventually, the Greek Seleucids would show up, then the Romans, followed by the Muslims, Crusaders, and Ottomans. You know how it goes. All during this time, owing to its location, it proved to be a trading center, located at the convergence of several trade routes, it was also an agricultural center, producing the usual regional crops of wheat and barley, along with livestock of goats and sheep. 
In the 20th century, its history would continue to follow the region. In late 1917, while the world was embroiled in the latter part of World War I, Brit T.E. Lawrence, better known as Lawrence of Arabia, was captured in the vicinity of the city as part of the Arab revolt against the Ottomans. He would quickly escape, and that's the city of Edri, the modern Dara. Moving along in Deuteronomy 1, I'm skipping Shephelah, but just for a minute. Deuteronomy 1 wraps up with a mention of Arabah, which I referred to earlier. You'll sometimes see it written as the Wadi Arabah, which gives away what it is, a dry riverbed, at least parts of it are. This is a desert area located in both southeastern Israel and southwestern Jordan. This place is at south of the Dead Sea. What we call Arabah today is likely a much smaller area than what it was when the Israelites referred to it. To them, it may have stretched as far north as the Sea of Galilee and as far south as the northern tip of the Red Sea, at the Gulf of Aqaba. This would mean that the whole of the Dead Sea, along with the Jordan Valley, lay within its boundaries. For the sake of brevity, I'll just focus on the modern, smaller region. And the quick story is that in almost all of its areas, it's dry and hot. Part of it is mountainous, and the other part, a desert plain. But all of it is inhospitable, save for many natural springs. What it does have is a great deal of copper, and is thought to have been one of many places where King Solomon would mine the metal likely from some of the oldest copper mines in the world. Backing up a bit, prehistoric cave carvings have been uncovered in the region. Later, and like all the places in this episode, when the Israelites first returned to the area, it was the home of the Edomites. Modern archaeologists have uncovered evidence of Edomite occupation in the region that dates to between 1300 and 800 B.C., the time period when the Israelites would have encountered them. It would later host the Petra-based Nabataeans, and that's it for Arabah. The next place mentioned is another geographic region, Shephelah. In ancient Hebrew, it translates to lowlands, or in some cases, like the King James, as the generic term valley. More frequently, it's called the Judean foothills, though this name would only be assigned to it after the territory was allocated to the tribe of Judah. Not to forget, but part of it was also assigned to the tribe of Dan. It runs between the Judean mountains in the east and the Mediterranean coastal plain in the west. In the mountains to the east is Jerusalem. Throughout its history, which would include the time before the Israelite tribes began to occupy it, so in the era of Deuteronomy, it's been prime agricultural land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The hills and valleys in the region tend to run east to west, essentially meaning that the movement in either of those directions is much easier than moving north or south. The hills also tend to have many natural and man-made caves, caves that are seen in both the Old and New Testaments, serving as hiding places, tombs, for storage, and even in some cases as temporary living places. The valley floors are where most of the agriculture tends to occur, with its fertile soil and semi-arid climate. 
Despite the favorable conditions, uncovered artifacts go back as only as far as the Late Bronze Age, which would place it about the same time as the Israelites were ready to occupy the land. After occupation, the hills and valleys served as a natural boundary between Judah and the Philistines. Of course, later, Judah and the various tribes in general would be destroyed by the Assyrians, then the Babylonians. When this occurred, the Edomites moved in. And after this, the usual regional history followed. The Greeks, then the Romans, and on and on. And that's it for Sephila. Next are several people and places I've covered before, mostly in Chapter 5, Episodes 5 through 19. People and places like the Valley of Eshkol, Hormah, the Wadi Zerd, the Anakim, and Caleb. The next place that I don't think I've covered is Mount Seir and is mentioned in Deuteronomy 2. If I have covered it and this is redundant, I apologize, but bear with me as it should only take a minute. And adding to the confusion is that there are two distinct places named Seir. The one I'm not covering today was on the northern boundary of the tribe of Judah and is mentioned in the books of Joshua and Ezekiel. The one referenced in this part of Deuteronomy actually refers to a mountainous region that runs between the Dead Sea in the north and the Gulf of Aqaba in the south. It too was the home of the Edomites. It also may have been the territorial limit for the Egyptian kingdom when it reached its zenith. In the temple of Amenhotep III, who reigned in the 14th century BC, a hieroglyph reads, Seir, in the land of the Shezu. The Shezu were nomadic cattle herders who lived in the area at that time. This Mount Seir was named for Seir the Horite, first mentioned in Genesis. Also in Genesis, we're told that Esau would settle here. At some point, Esau's descendants, the Edomites, fought against the Horites and destroyed them. Then, in Numbers, the prophet Balaam predicted Israelite victories over the Transjordanian nations at the end of their exodus from Egypt, victories that would include the territory around Seir. It would be referenced in several other places later in the Old Testament, always in a geographic context and usually as a place of an Israelite victory. And that's it for the southern Seir. Next up is Alath. It was found on the northern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba, so essentially one of the northernmost places on the Red Sea. Its name has changed much over the thousands of years since the Israelites settled in the area. Obviously, to the Israelites, it was Elath, but the Greeks and Romans called it various derivatives of Elah. When the Arabs controlled the area, they would name it Aqaba Elah, which would eventually be shortened to Aqaba, its modern name. As for Elath, there is a different, more recently established city in Israel known as Elot that was named after the ancient seaport. As for the ancient city, it was briefly mentioned in Deuteronomy, but is better known as being retaken for Judah by King Uzziah in 2 Kings 14. This allowed the reestablishment of a Judean trade route from the Red Sea a route that had been used extensively earlier by King Solomon as he built the wealth of his kingdom. The city would be lost two generations later by King Ahaz. 
In the same general area was the Red Sea seaport of Ezion Geber, referenced in the same Deuteronomy 2 verse as Alath. Obviously, the history of these two cities are very intertwined, to the point that they eventually merged. About the only distinction that Ezir Geber holds is found in 1 Kings 9, where we're told King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Aloth, on the shore of the Red Sea, in the land of Edom. Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, sailors who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. They went to Ophir and imported from there 420 talents of gold, which they delivered to King Solomon. As for this place known as Ophir, I'll save it for when I get to that part of the text. But do know that it is mentioned as exporting to Israel items such as gold, silver, sandalwood, pearls, ivory, and peacocks. Also either apes or baboons, depending on the translation. But there's been no definite identification of its location, though it's theorized as being India, Africa, the Philippines, or the Americas, or quite naturally, given who ruled Israel at the time, the Solomon Islands. And this many talents of gold, well, that could be as much as 46,000 pounds, or 21,000 kilograms, and at today's gold value would be worth in excess of a billion dollars. The next topic for this episode is not a little-known geographic place, thankfully. Unfortunately, it's a little-known people, the Avum. Unlike so many of the people I've covered, and whose names you've no doubt become familiar with, this is their first mention in the Bible, and the reason is both obvious and surprising. They apparently rose to power before Jacob and family journeyed to Egypt. They lived in Philistia, so along the Mediterranean coast. In their case, on the southern portion of what is today Israel and Egypt. Deuteronomy 2 tells us they would be destroyed by the Kaphirites while the Israelites were in Egypt. So in this case, we're given a bit of the history of the region. Jewish tradition holds that they were yet another enclave of giants. There's also a theory that they were the Hyksos, who invaded Egypt and settled in the Nile Delta around 1650 BC. Of course, that theory presumes that the Hyksos weren't the Israelites. And that's the little that's known about them. And that naturally leads to a discussion of the Kaphirites, the last people I'll cover in this episode. This is the name assigned to the people from Kaftur, and is thought to refer to people from Cappadocia, Cyprus, or Crete, among many other places, though the Old Testament, in both the Table of Nations and Chronicles, considered them to be from Egypt. Obviously, little is truly known about these people, and this is really seen when you read that in some sources they were giants, while other sources recorded they were dwarves. A place with a similar name, Kaptur, was recorded in the Mari tablets, uncovered in Mari, Syria. These tablets, inscribed around 1800 BC, have mentions of their weapons in that they sold the locals the metal tin. It also appears that Hammurabi received fabric from the Kaphirites. There are similar Egyptian inscriptions that may refer to them, all of this leading to more confusion than understanding. 
likely yet another example of a place we may never know where it truly was. Which gets me to a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with the people, places, and things found in Deuteronomy. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.